Welcome to the Capital Insight Podcast with Jenny Casson and Michelle Timish, two capital raising experts on a mission to demystify and equify the world of investment for entrepreneurs and investors alike. Listen in as they sit down with fundraising veterans and share with you the success stories and cautionary tales of outside the box capital raising. This is Capital Insight. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Capital Insight Podcast. I'm Michelle Timish. I'm here with my colleague, Jenny Casson, and our guest speaker today, fellow securities lawyer, Elizabeth Carter. Normally on the Capital Insight podcast, we break down and demystify direct investing primarily through interviews that we conduct with successful entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs who are in the process of raising capital or have already raised capital as well as outside the box investors who support those kinds of entrepreneurs. But occasionally we like to break free from our usual conversations and talk to other experts to engage on topics that really impact all of us in the finance ecosystem. So today we're going to talk about a really hot topic, which is compliance in investment crowdfunding or regulation crowdfunding. Investment crowdfunding has been legal in the U.S. since 2016, but because it represents a dramatic shift in what is possible in capital raising, there's still a great deal of uncertainty. We're thrilled to have securities attorney Elizabeth Carter join us for a conversation about why you should care about working with an investment crowdfunding platform that prioritizes getting compliance right. So welcome, Elizabeth. We'd love to hear about you and your background, how you got into this work, and what your experiences have been in on the compliance side of investment crowdfunding. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm actually really excited to have this conversation. Um, I think as an attorney in this space, you know, obviously our mind is really focused on the compliance and the strategy and just getting your client to the point where they could come up with a, a deal that works for them, but then also, okay, let's make this compliant so that it's, it's complicit with the SEC rules and, and also state rules as well. So this is this is really exciting for me. I think sometimes that that ladder, the compliance part, get a miss, uh, especially with crowdfunding. I think there's a misconception that it's sort of laissez-faire, right? And it's not treated as other sort of investment deals are. Um, so I, I'm, I'm happy to be here to talk about it. How did you get into this space? Since it's only five years old, I'm just curious about how you how you were drawn into working in the compliance space for regulation crowdfunding. Right. So I can tell you the long story and then I'll I'll quickly tell a long story and then tell the sort of short version. The long story is that as a law intern at a a law firm in New York and Manhattan that really primarily focused on co-ops, housing co-ops. Um, but the, the partner was interested in direct public offerings. And so that was the first time I actually got introduced to sort of uh, intrastate crowdfunding or direct public offerings was as an internal, as a law student. And I was really interested in, oh, wow, this is cool that business can raise capital, you know, from their, their neighbors, their communities. And that's when I first heard about Ben and Jerry's. And I just really got more interested. Uh, but it wasn't until literally years later, as an attorney, after practicing almost five years, uh, relocating to Chicago, did I really want to focus and hone in on that? Um, so it was a bit of a journey. I would say my community development journey and my interest in really supporting community initiatives, including community-based business initiatives, 
is what got me to this point. Um, I met Jenny, actually I met, I met Jenny um, Kassan um, during that time, maybe my first or second year when I started my firm and I was interested in really educating the business community, particularly women of color that here's an alternative way to raise capital because there's so much, so many challenges with this group of entrepreneurs to raise capital. And she was glad to do a presentation and talk about her book, Raise Capital on Own Terms. Um, but even then I wasn't fully all in, right? I mean, I have interests that stem from redevelopment and I'm just an overall community development attorney. Whatever works, whatever we need to do to bring assets and resources to our, our vulnerable communities, I'm there, right? Um, but it took me relocating to Chicago to meet this, to do some reflection and say, well, what, you know, out of all the, the different very sort of practices or fields you were in, what interests you most or what was some of the things you liked the least? And so I was doing some of that internal analysis with the firm. And then I realized I really like working with entrepreneurs and, and, and local artists and people who are just very talented and yet just reached this plateau when it came to their business development. They, they really needed to increase their capacity and funding was always an issue. And so that is when I decided to really just focus on the funding and capital raising piece and the securities piece um, entirely, right? Everything else went out the window. And then also just being experienced, I felt like it was time, it was at the time I, I was still learning, you know, the ropes of managing a law practice. You know, it's one thing to know the law. I think we, we can really get to know the law uh, really well, but then to manage all of that could be a big deal. And so I knew I wanted to really narrow the practice anyway. And so that was like the, the way to go. For me, I, I thought that I get the most reward by helping these uh, entrepreneurs and small business owners with, you know, thinking outside the box and, and getting access to capital they otherwise wouldn't have. That's so amazing. And we're so glad to have you in that very, very small group of attorneys that really know their stuff when it comes to compliance on <laughs> securities, especially regulation, crowdfunding. And, you know, we've been talking about some of the experiences we've been having as we've been working on regulation, crowdfunding campaigns. And you've told us some really interesting stories about things that you've been learning as you've been working on some of these campaigns. So we would just love to hear, you know, some of what you've been seeing in terms of challenges when it comes to working with regulation crowdfunding platforms. And just so everyone knows, under the law, if you're doing regulation crowdfunding under the federal law, you are required to go through a platform that has, you know, all the required licensing from the SEC and FINRA. And so every single entrepreneur has to choose a platform. And so we're kind of at the mercy of the platforms to make sure that they're doing their side right. So yeah, tell us some of your stories when it comes to helping entrepreneurs use these platforms. Yes. Okay. So part of my sort of marrying my practice and specifically to one area of the law, and not just one area, a subsection of this one area of the law. So I don't even cross the gamut of securities law, right? I don't care much about IPOs or, you know, at least not now. I'm focused more on the private offers, those, what you like to call, Jenny, the mainstream, you know, the, the small business owner. Um, and so I only really, I just focus on the crowdfunding exemptions, including 506C, <clears throat> excuse me, that are just uh, reserved for accredited investors. And a lot of times those are community investment funds, right? That want to raise capital for some type of community project. Um, but so with that being said, uh, regulation crowdfunding is one of those exemptions. And, and I think one of the most more popular when it comes to non-accredited investors. And so of course, that is something when people hear crowdfunding, if it's not donation crowdfunding, right? They think of regulation crowdfunding. And, and so, I see those, I see the interest around that more so, but I will say as I'm 
as I started to narrow my practice and get more involved in industry, I'm meeting different players in the industry, right? I'm learning who the platforms are and, and getting in touch with them and all these, you know, what you're supposed to do when you're really in the zone, when you're really uh, becoming an expert in the space, you get to know it in very intimately. Um, I will say, though, that out of all these ventures or all these sort of strategies that clients come to me for, Rank CF has been the most frustrating part for me because of the platforms, I will say. Um, and it, it's sort of similar, and I, I like to liken this to when I did real estate uh, law, that I really was frustrated working with realtors, right? It was too many chefs in the kitchen, so to speak. Um, I would have to constantly sort of protect the legal interests of the client, whereas the realtor was turning them into or, or directing them into something without even considering the legal implications. And then here go, I'm the attorney, I have to clean it up, right? So that's the most frustrating part for me. And I feel it's kind of the same with the RECCF and, and the required portals, having to work with the portals, um, because a lot of that is happening. So what I found is that, and, and I think, and I, I have to give it a benefit of the doubt, I think because crowdfunding was created to sort of, to again, to increase access to capital, part of that is trying to reduce as many barriers, which can include legal costs and accounting costs that can really, really, you know, make a deal expensive. I think sometimes, or, and also to help create a business market for these platforms, they've created a market where it's like a one-stop shop. We have a lawyer for you. We have an accountant for you. We have all this great stuff, but not recognizing, or at least the small business owner that's coming to the platform, not recognizing that that lawyer is not your lawyer. That lawyer is a lawyer for the platform. And so there's inherent conflict of interest there just starting off, off the bat, right? You can't, you know, I've had people come to me and say, can you represent me helping to form a platform? But also felt like I couldn't ethically do it because I, if I wanted to represent the businesses on that platform, there was that, that that relationship will conflict, right? And so that's one point. The other point though is that even outside of that. Um, I think even when the client is represented, what I found is that I'm fighting the platform a lot in terms of, you know, making sure that the client's deal is compliant and having those contrary viewpoints of what it means, or when, well, for instance, when to submit an amended form C in terms of material changes, right, versus when not to, and having the platform have a strong opinion about it. And, and, and so me getting frustrated as the attorney, um, because A, the liability falls on the small business issuer, right? And again, I love your article, Jenny, that you wrote about before you even hire your own attorney, before you even list and sign that contract with the platform, make sure that there's something in there that states that they are liable as well, right? Because if they're going to be instantly involved in, in changing the deals, the terms and, you know, suggesting one way or the other, which again is legal advice. A lot of times if you're telling a client form in this state versus another state in terms of entity choice, or if you're telling a client, you know, draft your operating agreement or your share, your, uh, um, your investment documents this way, that is legal advice, right? Um, or financial advice, which is something that the SEC has explicitly stated you cannot do as a portal. And yet I've seen them do it. And, and so it creates confusion for the, and, and quite honestly, more so for the small business issuer that, is, is really are already scared and, and, and walking into a territory unknown about, I want to do this right, right? Um, and it's not fair when the portal come in and, say, and, and, and do it in a way that's contrary to their interests. And a lot of times it's in favor of their own interests or a lot of them will say protecting the investors. So if that's, if that's your MO, then you have to understand there's a conflict of interest there and not all these deals are set up the same and they need their own particular attention. And so... For me, the frustrating part, again, is, is sort of feeling like too many chefs are in, is in the kitchen and, and, and not being respected or the client's legal counsel being respected um, to say that, okay, this is their deal. This is how they want to move forward. 
allow them to put it on there again so long as it's not misrepresenting anyone and you know just having that conversation i think it could be a better amicable relationship if the part if the portals understood their position and i think a lot of times maybe because again going back to crowdfunding the idea was you don't need a lawyer we can do even with these safe notes right you don't need a lawyer but anytime you're signing a contract and millions of dollars being raised you should have legal counsel review that because it is something that has, uh, you know, that's implications legally, right? And it shouldn't, that conversation never, no one should ever tell you, you don't need a lawyer. It should say, you don't have to have an attorney. Like I can go to court and represent myself, but it's advised to have one, right? <laughs> so I think, you know, I don't know. I think part of it is keep in a positive note, I think we can have better relationships and, and try to figure out how we all can work together and improve the industry. Um, but, you know, I think the example with True Crowd and, the cannabis and uh, a business that the SEC just worked down on just shows like this is a real this is real and if we're not careful with how how these businesses are representing themselves to the investors then they can get in trouble for misrepresentation or fraud right or if another example I know I'm running on and on but another example you know with these off with Reg CF with the trend is to attach a Reg D immediately on it without even going through the compliance of whether what the rule 506C or rule 504, they don't even tell you what type of Reg D. They just say, oh, we're going to do a Reg D. And it's like, well, did you do the compliance around that, you know, legal compliance? And it's never, it's always no, at least from my experience. I, I don't see them telling, half the time they're not telling them to file a form B right afterwards, right, either. And so it's just, it's really this, mis this misunderstanding or misconception and it confuses the founder and places them at a, a, a huge legal liability, in my opinion. Yeah, I think your point, the point you make about really the danger of the portals advertising the, the use of regulation crowdfunding as this easy, simple thing that you can do, trust us, we've got you covered, mm -hmm. um, the danger of that one-stop shopping. Uh, and it, it's hard. It's hard for the entrepreneurs to know. It's, it's difficult to tell. You go to all these different funding portals and other than how big or how small or maybe what the past campaigns have have been it's very difficult to determine which platforms are in fact care about the compliance piece how do you see it? i mean you've pointed out some of you've pointed out the dangers of of just going all in and taking their word for it, letting them do everything because it's less expensive maybe, or easier you get up, you're in a rush to get your offering up. Mm -hmm. Go maybe a little bit more into, you mentioned the true crowd situation. The listeners might not really know uh, the background of that story. We, the SEC is, is very concerned right now. The SEC and FINRA are very concerned about the level of compliance mm -hmm. in regulation crowdfunding that is absolutely abysmal. Mm -hmm. And that is going to potentially poison the well. And I know for myself, both as an attorney and the founder of one of the portals, Crowdfund Main Street, it's really coming down to the fact that we need to save this. It, this was a long, hard fought right to open up investing to everyone. And, you know, even the, within the SEC, which is a, a five person commission, I don't know that people really understand how, how much controversy there really is still in our country about who should have the right 
to invest in small businesses as an asset class. So this is something that was hard fought to get in the first place. And we really are concerned about the possibility of this all going down in flames by poisoning of the well. So I'd love it if you could go into a little bit more about some of the compliance issues like true crowd um, and, and how easy it is to get caught up in the failures that are pretty prevalent in the compliance space right now. Right. Now I'm glad you mentioned, mentioned the, the, like reasons why we care so much, right? I mean, some may say, oh, well, you're a lawyer, so of course you're going to advocate for the lawyers. But no, I'm, a lot of us are lawyers because we're advocates, right? We, we went to law school to advocate, to, to really push forth, um, you know, these issues on behalf of people and to help and to support. And I think, I mean, that's how I approach the law. I mean, I know some, I always say there's like one or two types of people to go to law school. Those who want to get really rich and those who want to, you know, change the world. <laughs> so there's a lot of us who go in with these bright eyes, like I want to help and want to make the law better. And so you bring up a good point, you know, folks like Jenny and those earlier uh, advocators for this, I mean, saw that, you know, security, and even I, as a law student, this is why I didn't start off with security first. I didn't see any relevance to people <laughs> that I interact with, right? I didn't see any relevance to low and moderate income people, to Black and Latinx people, these marginalized groups. I just didn't see that. And as, an, as a Black woman, as a lawyer or a law student at the time, I know I, want, I knew I wanted to do something that went back to the community that helped you know, uh, increase the agency of others, right? That just, that the systems just doesn't do that for. And so crowdfunding to me is, it, that's why I do crowdfunding. It, it makes, it's, it, and this is why I'm not interested in IPOs or stock, stock market or, or um, Wall Street, right? Because it's all about who I'm representing and what are we doing, using this for? We can use these tools for good is what I'm saying. And so what your, your point you put out is that I also feel that way, especially for vulnerable communities, this is already very few options. And if we take the one, one of the very few options that actually opens up doors, right, to whether we call it wealth or whether we call it community wealth, individual wealth, you know, doors to access to opportunities where they can be take part in meaningful projects in their community, see, you know, a building go up and help and, and say I'm one of the investors for it, right, or, you know, just supporting a founder that otherwise wouldn't have access to the funding um, because banks won't lend or whatever. Like, I'm, that's why I'm such a, strong proponent of we got to get this right because there's going to be a lot of people who are going to be turned away from it, who will be disillusioned from it. And so I'm glad you brought that up. And so, yeah, and you're right. It can be very easy to make a misstep because misrepresentation and fraud, particularly fraud has more of an intentional act, right? When we learned this in law school, it's like, okay, can you um, show that it was intention to create fraud? But misrepresentation is one of those things. It's almost like yeah, I didn't lie, but I didn't tell you the truth either. <laughs> so it's like, it's, it's, it's simply that you just didn't disclose it. Not that you actually said something that wasn't true, but you should have disclosed something that you didn't, right? Or that you wasn't as detailed enough to say, well, I'm going to use the funds this way. So that when you did decide, when you did actually act on using the proceeds from the investor funds in a way um, that may have not matched up what you said in your disclosed documents, your Form C or your disclosure documents, that's misrepresentation. And in the case of True Crowd, um, I don't know some of the, the, the intentions or the meaning or what was happening behind the closed doors, but essentially they raised one million um, from on the on the portal, True Crowd, and, and they were using it what the SEC deemed as personal use instead of whatever they put on the form, right? Oh, we're gonna use it to build it out. 
our business and buy software, you know, some of the typical things or to increase capacity, you know, uh, hire staff. Apparently they didn't do that. They diverted to personal use. But I also can see a situation where it, they, you know, it doesn't have to be uh, malevolent, right? It could be where you just didn't fully explain what this use was going to be, right? And you just sort of, because I, what I noticed with a lot of these um, form C's that for people who aren't represented, they're typically, they're all the same, right? So you're literally just using a template and you don't change it for your particular use. So if you're putting up a template, um, you're not really disclosing properly what you're you're going to do with these funds and or who your your um, your 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 decision makers are and what happens if one of them you know are are not there anymore or in this case, do one of your does one of the the CEO have a criminal background that should be disclosed that can impact the deal right I mean there's things that are unique in particular to every particular deal that should have its own set of pair of eyes instead of a legal work around it versus just going on a platform and say, here's a template. We're going to use the same risk factor disclosures that are very general because mind you, it should be very specific. Um, and that's what we're noticing is that it doesn't have to be, you know, you going in wanting to defraud people. It could be simply that you just did not say enough or you did not um, explain it clearly in a way that people understood that that's what you're going to do with their money, right? Yeah, so you know, you have worked on some awesome crowdfunding campaigns and would you be willing to share a story of, and you don't have to maybe name names, <laughs> but if you could share like a cautionary tale of a specific campaign you worked on and some of the issues you saw when you worked with one of the, you know, crowdfunding platforms and, you know, saw sort of how they were not necessarily doing what was in the best interest of your clients. Yeah, so um, I have a story where the offer is a debt offer, and and I drafted all the documents from the term sheet to you know the subscription agreement and even all the information on the form C. I mean, obviously the note that surrounds the the, 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 the debt, and I, <laughs> I asked the portal, you know, I don't mind you submitting the form C because you know either the lawyer submits the form C to the SEC or the portal can do it, right? They can do it on behalf of the issuer. And I said, I didn't mind, especially because you have to file with, both the portal and the SEC should have a copy of it anyway. But I was doing it under the impression that we're gonna work together and I literally draft everything that should just literally just go up, right? Uh, but here's another thing, not knowing their capabilities as far as software. So there could there was also, I think, an issue with just their software and they're not there again they're, they need they need to work on that right this and these are startups as well and I think a lot of times people see that all this money is raised on these platforms but not knowing that that is not their money right and they still have they're still startups and they still have to increase their own capacity and, and really work things through um so that's just a sidebar there but but it, back to the story um the documents weren't uploaded as they should have as, as literally I'm thinking just copy and paste. There's the, here's the information. There's nothing else you need to do. It's just we have your team review it, make sure, you know, it's it's not sort of unintentionally misleading people. What you know, because their responsibility is to make sure that they're not posting fraudulent offers, right? So just make sure that's not happening. Okay, good. We're good. We're gonna upload it and we can just, you know, launch as this. But but that didn't happen. What happened was the disclosures that we were speaking about, some of the risk factors were changed. So here we are offering debt. And yet somehow one of the risk factors discuss shareholders and what it means to be a shareholder or what it means to have equity. And I'm like, this is not, why did you change that? We're not offering equity. 
Why do you, why didn't you just put this as is? And so it was a lot of that. And I felt like I had to really watch T for T. It's sort of like, a, you know, engaging in a contract negotiation and, and the other side is not redlining. They're changing. And so you're having to read everything from scratch to make sure. So it does come off, um, whether it's an oversight or not, it, it does also come off as um, bad faith, right? It, because now, again, you're, you're doing it on your terms instead of the business terms. And so that was very problematic. You, you, even something that small as that, that seems small, like, oh, it's just a, it's not a typo if you're disclosing something about an offer that it's not actually what it is. That's a real problem. That's a real case for fraud, right? Um, so I would say, you know, that was probably one of the biggest, but it was so many. <laughs> it was so many wrong with that. I mean, I think ultimately, if I can put it in a nutshell, if the platform was too involved on the legal side as well as the financial advice side, um, but mainly the legal side, you know, again, suggesting that something what was material or what wasn't material. So, oh, well, I don't think we should, we have to submit it to the SEC or we have, to, or, or I don't think we have to um, inform the investors because we don't think it's material. So going back and forth, it's like, but that's not your job, right? The job is for the client or for the business to decide that upon their rights of legal, right? And so it became this sort of pool, which again, ultimately will put the liability on the issuer. But I, I love this, this case with the SEC because what was that no everybody's gonna get in trouble in terms of because the platform because they're so intimidating i think they all should take this as a cautionary tale you that you that the, the issue literally has a case against you because now you're really you act as their attorney right you acted as their advice advisor and so now you know you should take some of that liability if things go wrong yeah and it's it's i i think it's attitude a lot of what you're pointing out is that there's this attitude toward the form C, which if you, if you don't know the form C is the document that you file, it's the primary disclosure requirement for using regulation crowdfunding to raise capital. And the attitude about the form C seems to be prevalently that this burden, this is a burden, this is this annoying form that you have to fill out in order to qualify to raise capital on a, on a portal. And I, I think that that's, a, that's a, a lost opportunity. Not only is it dangerous for all the reasons you point out, Elizabeth, but it's also, it's also a missed opportunity to look at this document and these disclosure requirements as this burden that we just need to get through, right? A one sentence line for this question, a one sentence line for this, never mind my background, uh, maybe I'll just couch it in this real summary fashion. And I've seen a lot of it on my own platform when attorneys that don't have a lot of experience or any experience doing form C's, they may be in the regulation uh, or in the crowdfunding space from like reg D where, you know, we call reg D the wild, wild West, right? The disclosure requirements, because you're soliciting from accredited investors only the, the, the longstanding sort of assumption is that you, there's little you have to do to really protect the wealthy. And so that attitude carries over then to the completion of the form C, but we need to understand that this is an opportunity. The Form C is an opportunity for you 
as the entrepreneur to really get it right, to really talk about the vision, to lay it out. What is your plan? What do you plan to use the proceeds for? What is your background? Why are you the appropriate team to be bringing this forward? Tell us everything. It's just like in a real estate transaction. I used to do broker compliance and I remember a lot of brokers have the attitude that the more their real estate agents know, the more dangerous they are. And I, you know, my attitude is, look, if to the extent that you disclose everything that could possibly be material in a transaction, whether that's a real estate transaction or a crowdfunding offering, the more you put into the disclosures and making sure that you are informing people about exactly what you're doing and what you plan to achieve, you're protecting yourself. You need that disclosure to be the best it can be because it protects you. And it's hard for me to understand why platforms don't think that way about the Form C. And I'm just wondering if you, what are your thoughts on what the disconnect is there? Is it because some of the platforms come from more of the traditional, more venture style capital space where maybe those disclosures weren't as important? Do you have a sense of what it is or do you think it's it's something along the lines of uh, capabilities and that the people in charge of this compliance piece are perhaps not qualified? I think it's both. And also I think... Um is arrogance. Um, and I say that because I think, <clears throat> well, one of the responses sometimes when you question, you know, whether they're right or wrong from, I don't know, an interpretation of the rule, they'll say, well, we've done, we've done hundreds of these, right. And nothing happened. And it's like, well, I don't think that's a good argument. You can do a hundred things wrong. And then one part, and finally some, there's one sorry loser that, that kind of gets in trouble for everybody else. That doesn't mean it was done the right way. And so I think part of that arrogance is that because you're the one of the first or the top. And so people are going to more likely flow to you than others. Doesn't mean that you get it right. And I think it's okay to say that we're all still figuring out as we go, but not just, just figuring out, like really taking that time to do your due diligence to make sure that, I mean, the rule is there, right? I mean, the rule is there. It's not like there's a lot of gray area per se. So just follow the rule as such and hire competent counsel yourself to make sure that you're doing the right thing. I think sometimes these portals are also not hiring security attorneys. They're hiring maybe, I don't know, uh, some other business type of attorney, but, but this is a particular area of the law that takes time to learn and understand and to really, really get in. Like I said, for me, I dropped everything else and just did it, right? I'm like, I need to focus on it. I want to be part of those conversations and see what, what's coming up down the pipeline and in terms of rule and regulatory changes, like you have to be in it. So I think part of it is competency. Um, but also this arrogance that, well, we've done it. Again, here's another story, liking it's another field of law. When I did landlord-tenant law, um, I would notice that, especially as a law student working in a legal aid, right? So oftentimes these type of indigent clients or low-income clients are not represented. So the landlord side is most li more likely than not are represented. And what happens is that the, the landlord's attorney doesn't have to work because when they go in with their legal knowledge and their legal power and just sort of get these, you know, low-income tenants, they could get them evicted, right? And even if the low-income tenant had a good defense, they don't know the law. No one's there to speak on their behalf. And so over time, those landlords attorney gets lazy and, and lazy and they aren't reading the law. They're not as equipped and skillful. 
And so what happens is that when the other side or the tenant is represented by a competent attorney, they actually win those cases, right? And so I liken that to this as well is that there's so many unrepresented issuers that it looks like the other side is right all the time, but when they're not, um, or when they're the other side is represented, more likely than not, their sort of way of doing is not the right way. Um, and I think the other side is that, you know, to me, we're all in this together. We all have a role. I don't see why the platforms want to take on all of that. The capacity is real. If you have hundreds of, of business coming through your platform, as you say, how could you realistically cater to every particular legal and, and other needs of these issuers when you shouldn't even have, you shouldn't want that job. Like your job, you have a role, everyone has a role and you should play it, play it right. And then maybe does, and then going back to your point about venture capital, venture capital is a world where there's control. Um, and, and, and oftentimes they are coming from that world where the investor controls or uh, this powerful, more wealthier person controls. And so it's that culture of, of control and dictating how you want it to be done versus letting it be, um, you know, letting these deals flow and, and be what they are, right? I mean, raising, I love your book, Jenny, Raising Capital in Your Own Terms is a direct contrary uh, to um, venture capital, which is the opposite. People are looking for VC funding. The VC has the term. They're controlling mm-hmm. the term sheet. Exactly. Yeah. So I think it's part of, like you said, I think it's part of that world of, well, this is what we're used to. And so these folks, these, these non-accredited investors don't know what they're doing. And they don't know. They need, they need that. They need us to come and tell them. And I think that's sort of that arrogance there that should, shouldn't be there. I think we should have more faith in the industry itself and all the players that's in it and everyone work together to help, you know, move these deals forward. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the challenges is that a lot of these, um, these platforms are venture backed themselves yeah. uh-huh. and they have to, they're, they're Silicon Valley startups, you know, yeah. just like any other Silicon Valley startup, they're trying to move fast and break things. Yes. And the more, um, you know, the more standardized things are, mm-hmm. the easier it is for them to try to scale. And I think the problem is that they're just what you know we know as lawyers that this is not really scalable in that way in the Mm -hmm. way that like a food delivery service might be Mm -hmm. you know or an app to order from your favorite restaurant like this Mm -hmm. is a highly regulated area and every business is unique Mm -hmm. and it, it you cannot scale it that way so um I think that is a really big danger that we're mixing that Silicon Valley attitude of scale as fast as possible by standardizing everything mm-hmm. with something that is just it doesn't fit that so I agree mm-hmm. anyway well this has been amazing I think we could go on forever on this topic and it's so fun to spill the tea with some awesome securities <laughs> lawyers <laughs> who knew that a securities law conversation could be so interesting no, I would say I actually this is refreshing for me because I, I I reached out I reached out to you and others like it was happening here is it just me that I'm just in you and everyone everyone is like no it's not just you so I'm like okay I feel good that it's not because it felt so wild wild west to me and I'm like I it's too wild for me I'm trying to figure out how do we make sure that you know again it's it's a, a field that people can feel confident in doing and it's not something people just playing money with you know so no this is good and I think we can have other stories and, I, and I'm glad to share and I'm, and I'm welcome you know how to work together in this space to, to just again to make it right and and fit for those that really need it like i said i we all said it in the beginning this this type of you advocated for 
this on behalf of the small business, right? Not the, the, the grandiose business that can afford all this, but for the small business owner. And so same for me, like how do we make sure that this is a viable tool for those that are most vulnerable, right? And I think this is necessary to have this type of conversation. Yeah, it's been it's been really a pleasure. I appreciate it, not just as an advocate and an attorney, but also as the founder of a boutique platform that's, you know, not out to be the biggest platform. Um, compliance is huge. And of course, we share a passion about the demographic that we want to serve access to capital for those who have been boxed out for so long. So thank you so much for joining us with all of your really great insight. Thank you for fighting the good fight, taking care of the people in the community. It's such a pleasure to have you in this ecosystem. Thank you. Thank you. No, I appreciate those kind words. And likewise, I really appreciate you too as well. And look forward to just combining and collaborating more often in the future. Do you have any questions for our securities lawyers and capital raising experts? Call the podcast hotline and leave us a message at 866-552-7726, extension 5. You can also send other inquiries to podcast at jennycasson.com. We'd love to hear from you. Music for the Capital Inside podcast is Still Searching by Damon Criswell via Audio Hero. Thank you for listening to Capital Insight with Jenny Casson and Michelle Timish. Until next time.